Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is number 17, or the 17th episode, in our series in the second half of world history. In the 16th episode that we recorded and discussed, I mentioned and brought up the idea of corporate regulation via the FDA, the establishment of the eight-hour workday. In other words, progressivism was making a difference in America for the middle class and the common workers. We also discussed the presidency of William Howard Taft and how President Woodrow Wilson came into office being a Democrat when the Republican Party was split between William Taft and Teddy Roosevelt. We then just briefly mentioned about his returning the delivery of the State of the Union address in person, and then we ended with our uh, discussion on the essentially an uh, erroneous era or sense of humankind becoming indestructible as we discussed the voyage and the sinking of the RMS Titanic. So here in the 17th episode in the second half of American history, we're going to then look at how America entered onto the world stage and ultimately would become involved in sadly not one but two colossal global conflicts known as world wars. So this period that I'll be looking at, and it could be tight if it had to have a title, it essentially could be called Creating an Empire, is our last glance back into the 1800s and drawing up parallels and different themes through to 1917. While that may seem to be kind of an odd year to to mention versus 1900 or even 1915, but as many of my listeners may know, 1917 was not the, clearly the start of World War I, or back at that time it was known as the Great War, but was when America became involved in 1917. So what's going on here in, the, in international relations is this concept of imperialism, the colonizing of foreign lands. Imperialism, which is Latin for empire, clearly didn't start in 1865 and don't even pretend to, uh, you know, to claim that notion. Imperialism more or less started or debuted with Columbus's uncertain discovery of foreign lands that there was no record anywhere in the Eurasian continents of this land existing significantly west of continental Europe. The more that Columbus traveled to the New World, eventually making four trips, the more question marks he brought back rather than answers as to where was this place? Who are these people? None of those natives that Columbus and his discovery team encountered, their dress, their, the foods that they ate, their housing, nothing resembled anything in the written record anywhere from Europe, Asia, or uh, the Middle East or Africa. 
But that didn't stop the curiosity from these European countries to see the economic signs, the dollar signs written on the wall of the opportunities that lie ahead significantly west of Europe. Mind you, in the best of circumstances with the weather cooperating every day, it was anywhere from a, between a five and seven week journey from Africa or Europe, from Western Africa or Western Europe, coastlands in order over to the eastern side of South, Central or North America. So what about those lands impelled the European countries to take the significant risk, both physically as well as financially, to try to determine who these people were and what this land was. That's more or less what started the age of colonization, which eventually led to imperialism. So what started in 1492, ironically, would not stop until 1945 at the end of the Second World War. And more about that when we get to the closing of the World War in later podcasts. So what was the motivation then or the justification for these European imperialistic policies? What gave them, quote unquote, the right to be able to subjugate foreign peoples on their own land? Well, there's four primary sources of motivation slash justification. The first was racial superiority. The Europeans simply determined that because they seemed to be, they themselves seemed to be more advanced, they were the superior race. Therefore, they had the right to subjugate the, these native peoples because they didn't speak the same language and they had very little in common in any part of their social aspects of living. What's the second reason was religious conversion. Yes, you'll hear occasionally about various individuals of religious orders decrying the way that the West was impounding their, their will on these native people. But the fact of the matter is that the major established churches and religions of the day clearly also saw the opportunity to convert thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of people. Third was the economic opportunity. All of those raw materials that could be gathered, brought back to Europe, who is clearly well into the industrialization by this point, to turn those raw materials into finished goods. And then you would have a market back in the uh, native countries to be able to sell those goods back to them. And finally, and not any less important, was international security. So again, we have those four, and I'll come back to international security in a moment because I want to stress it is arguably the most important. But of those four motivations, you had race superiority, religious conversion opportunities, economic opportunities, and then international security. What we mean by international security is if you notice again when this outline began, 1865, or this discussion or podcast, 1865 to 1917, the significance of 1865 is not simply because that was the end of the American Civil War. 1865 was the year that empires and royal families around the world recognized that because of the way the American Civil War was fought, because of the hundreds and hundreds of new patents creating more devastating and effective weapons, patents to make 
vessels on the water move faster than they ever have before, fight more efficiently with ironclad ships, even go under the water with one of the first attempts at truly a submarine. Clearly, royal families around the world recognized that their navies were instantly becoming outdated because of the advancements of the American Navy and before the war was closed, the Confederate Navy. What that meant is that those two massive oceans on both sides of the American continent that once used to be able to make us a lot safer because of how much time would be required to get from the European continent or clearly the Asian continent to the United States proper, those massive moats, they were disappearing. Now that we were moving into steamships and we were moving into getting able to move over the water far faster than we had before, weather affecting us far less than it had before, clearly Europe and, and Asia were becoming a lot closer to the United States than it ever has in our history. Because of that, America also was playing this imperialistic game. No, we weren't interested in colonies in Europe proper or Asia proper, but rather we were interested in the various islands to the east and southeast of the United States as well as to the west. So the United States was no less innocent in this age of imperialism. Again, as I mentioned before in prior podcasts, remember that as of 1800, 65 years before this podcast discussion begins, in 1800, Europe and the United States, few, a handful of European countries in the United States, owned 35% of all land on Earth. By 1914, just three years before this discussion ends, Europe, European nations and the United States swallowed up from 35% to an astonishing 84% of all land on Earth. Again, 8.9% locked over in Antarctica, which meant that truly just 7.1 or 6.1% of the available land was free for the taking to every other country in the world. Prior to the late 1860s, foreign affairs and international relations from an American perspective was barely a concern. We were more interested in, prior to 1860 in trying to keep a civil war erupting over states' rights. After 1860 through to 1865, it was the Union trying to stop the Confederacy from remaining an independent country to our immediate south. Once that civil war came to an end, though, America was forced to have to look off, off of our borders out of our shores and recognizing that there would be essentially be a need for America to have a foothold in islands and lands west and east of the United States. It's the reason why, for a quick example, we acquired Alaska in 1867 under the leadership of Secretary of State William Seward. Initially, he was criticized significantly because of that annexation of Alaska. Well, technically we paid for it, but he was criticized for that. He, they called it Seward's Folly and Seward's Icebox. What use would that be to us? 
but the fact of the matter is it's of significant strategic importance then, as well as into the 21st century. We acquired the Hawaiian Islands in 1898. We were acquiring other islands in the Caribbean as well as in the uh, southern parts of the Pacific, uh, the Pacific Ocean. All of these concerns and motive, imperialistic motivation is what unfortunately would, would lead the United States, as well as a major European power, Spain, ultimately to clash with one another in what became known as the Spanish-American War. It started with nothing to do with the United States at all. Rather, the United States was monitoring the islands in the Caribbean, knowing full well that all of them were occupied and or owned by European powers. But the moment that one of those native people on those islands started to show signs of unrest and trying to get the European rulers off of their backs, the United States saw that as an opportunity of its, for its own. So they, to, what precipitated, therefore, the conflict between Spain and the United States was that the big island of Cuba, right off the tip of Florida, of course, was seeking independence from Spain. And different types of guerrilla warfare movements were taking, efforts were taking place to try to lower Spain's enthusiasm and will for trying to continue to occupy the island nation of Cuba. The United States saw this independence movement clearly as a plus, but how could we get involved? On what grounds? That island has nothing to do with us. That is clearly an insurrection between Spain and its own subjugated people on that island. So the United States initially didn't think that there was any way that it could get involved. However, and keep in mind, President William McKinley clearly didn't want to commit American forces to what is essentially an international conflict between an island in the Caribbean and Europe. However, what began to affect this conflict, unlike any other before in American history, was this concept of yellow journalism. The phrase, quote, feed me the pictures and I'll write the stories, end quote, that was stated by one of the first true millionaires making his money in the publishing industry was none other than William Randolph Hearst. What was happening is that American journalists were working their way onto the island taking snapshots in the rudimentary technology available at the time of the various phases of the conflict in different areas of Cuba where the fighting was intense. Those pictures with no stories written around it or because of it would then be sent back to New York City where Hearst would then put those papers in his newspaper and write the story around it. That clearly would be the beginning of what a future 45th president of the United States by the name of Donald Trump would really call, and be accurate in this case, to call it fake news. Because Hearst didn't really care what the story was around those pictures. He simply wanted good sensationalist pictures to be able to write those stories to go with it even, of course, if the stories had actually nothing to do with what was really going on in the picture. The bottom line is, as Hearst stated, is that pictures on the top fold of the newspapers sell the papers. Because of this influence from the press, 
President William McKinley, he felt pressure continuing to mount up from the public for the president to act. Initially, he started to give in to the pressure, not, of course, militarily, but trying to open up negotiations with Spain, looking at a different, trying to seek a diplomatic resolution between the, Span, between the Spanish and the Cuban natives. While those negotiations were going on, an American battleship by the name of the Maine blew up in Havana Harbor, killing 266 Americans on board. Hearst's journalists were all around that ship, taking the pictures and sending those pictures back to New York City, where Hearst would write some very, once again, sensationalist articles to go along with those pictures. That is ultimately what pushed the public to mount the pressure on the president to finally get involved, because now it would be a war of American defense and or retaliation. Before we get to the conflict itself, which I'll cover very, very briefly because it's a very short war and the end of it is far more important than what took place during, please know that the explosion was never investigated. If it was true, the way Hearst wrote in the papers, that the Spanish blew up the American battleship, wouldn't it make sense that an immediate investigation would be started in order to figure out just how that ship ultimately went down. Sometime later, a report was generated, but then ignored because it was determined that the cause of the explosion could not have been from weaponry planted by the Spanish outside the ship. The reason being is because it was proven that the explosion was an internal reason not an external issue. In other words, most likely one of the boilers exploded, putting a massive hole, hole in the bottom of the ship, bringing it down immediately into Havana Harbor. The way it would have been determined that that was an internal explosion would have primarily been able to be determined by the way that the steel on the, and the wood structure on the sides of the ship would have blown outwards away from the ship rather than inwards internally. You can get a sense of this because clearly we don't have any pictures of the actual main sunk there in Havana Harbor. But if you happen to recall the story of when this Russian submarine, the Kursk, was sunk in August of 2000, the way the Russians did not want any investigation of what was going on, and ultimately they claimed that it was an external an explosion, an, an internal explosion, that brought the submarine down and those submariners ultimately to their long and cold and cruel death. But the fact of the matter is the hull of the submarine doesn't support that it was an explosion from the inside because the hull, the front hull of the Kursk showed that the sheet metal on the few pictures that happened to be, happened to be snapped of the, of the ship, of the submarine, of the vessel, the sheet metal was going inward not outward. As a result, what that means is the curse most likely was attacked, but Russia didn't want to admit it. Let's go two months later, and you can pull these pictures up of the USS Cole that was attacked near the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, in, again, in October of 2000. That was a raft 
with two suicide bombers with a raft loaded with explosives that came very close to the hull of the coal and then was detonated. If you look at those pictures, you'll see that all of the burnt steel from the side of the, of the coal, all of that is pushed inward, meaning that the explosion was an external one. So this is the reason we know that most likely Spain had nothing to do with the blowing up and sinking of the battleship Maine. But that wasn't stopping people from reading the paper, from seeing Hearst's articles written around pictures that might have had nothing to do with the truth. The United States therefore declared war on Spain on April 25th, 1898, and it would be at that time that the United States, for the first time in its history, would be fighting a conflict in two different theaters of war. Theaters of war is the first time in my first podcast, first series on American History 1, and then in this series on American History 2, where I'm using the term theater. Theater implies an, an area very far separate from another area where the same forces are fighting. In this case, the United States would be fighting not only in the Caribbean around Cuba, but we would also launch an attack of the Spanish-held islands in the Pacific Ocean called the Philippines. Because we had not been fighting prior to our declaration of war, we had the resources, we had the money, and we had the human power to be able to fight in these two theaters of war. Because America would begin, uh, would start to win that conflict practically immediately upon our entry into the war, unfortunately, the conflict, because it was so short and such a significant victory for the United States, is that slam-dunked America's appetite for foreign islands. That leads us to literally just nine months later to February 6th, 1899, when the Treaty of Paris would be written up, settling the Spanish-American War and ending it altogether. The three essential parts that I want to point out of the Treaty of Paris are important because it's not, not important just because of that day, February 6th, the future birthday, the, the birthday of a future president who will be born in 1911 by the name of Ronald Reagan. It was important because Spain accepted Cuban independence. Spain also ceded Puerto Rico and Guam to the United States. They also had to, Spain also had to give up the Philippines and allowed the United States to occupy those islands. So for the total re result of a 2,446 Americans killed, America reaped a boatload of islands that would be available to us going forward. And I want to stress this because if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, weren't we helping in Cuba and the Philippines to fight off their European oppressors? Yes, you're correct. Well, then why aren't we going home? If you're asking that, then you need to go back to the beginning of this podcast where I talked about the motivations for imperialism. Listeners, we had no intention on moving and sailing away off of those islands for good once we threw Spain off of them. 
And the people, the natives in Puerto Rico and Guam and the Philippines, they were just as surprised. Hey, United States giving us a high five or a fist bump. Thanks a lot. Because of your help, we can now take down the Spanish flag and we can now put up our own flag. Except that America says, well, yeah, you can put up your own flag, but you're going to make sure the American flag is right next to it. We again had no intention of leaving. We wanted these island footholds because we knew in the age of mechanization that those massive moats called Pacific and Atlantic Oceans were no longer going to give us the security that we had been enjoying for the last 125 years. So again, for 2,446 Americans killed, America netted a vast amount of island territory, which then leads us to this other part in this podcast called imperial ambitions. In Asia, this concept of the sphere of influence started to come about, meaning just how far away from our own native lands is of legitimate concern to the individual country. In other words, because we had those moats protecting us in the age of sail, that Atlantic Ocean and Pacific Ocean were massive buffers that we felt protected us. But now in the age of mechanization, when vessels can travel so much faster on the water, and let's face it, more experiments would be done about how to travel underneath the water, suddenly, as far as our eyes could see off of the Atlantic and Pacific coast was no longer far enough to give America the sense of protection that it needed. America wasn't the only one thinking this way. Any established country on the planet was also having the same growing pains and concerns about the age of mechanization and mechanized warfare. Therefore, countries around the world attempted to exert their influence into regions and areas where before were never an area of concern. This showed its ugly head in what became known as the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1906. This was a bold, blatant attack by the Japanese onto the Russian continent to try to acquire islands to Japan's northwestern regions in those open waters. The United States initially was more than impressed with the way Japan started that war. Why? Because as the Russian Navy and Army slept during the night, the Japanese Navy moved in to launch a surprise attack on the unsuspecting Russians. As I described that, if you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought you were just talking about Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's almost four decades later. But Japan used a strategical position or a strategical, strategic tool or initiative that turned out to reap significant rewards. It's no surprise that the Japanese would try that on the United States in 1941. So again, the United States, now under the leadership of President Theodore Roosevelt because of the unfortunate assassination of William McKinley back in 1901, Roosevelt not only favored the war, he actually complimented the Japanese on the way that they were able to sneak up on the Russians and attack them when they were caught off guard. 
it's amazing what his future relative by the name of Franklin Roosevelt would think of that when he would be president when the Japanese tried that exact same strategic attack on us. So the United States initially sided with Japan. And although Japan prevailed with the United States assistance, after the conflict was over, Japanese and Amer Japanese American relations slowly started to deteriorate for reasons we'll get into as we near the Second World War. But now that the United States has these overseas islands significantly west into the Pacific Ocean and southeast into the Atlantic Ocean, might that have been enough for us? Would we be now secure by having Guam and Puerto Rico and occupying Cuba in the Philippines? Is that enough for the United States? Well, it turns out, as we're going to find out, it wasn't. Because now the, the new American president again, Teddy Roosevelt, his eyes, now that he was satisfied with how much America had acquired both West and East, now his eyes were diverting down to the South, into Central and eventually South America. When we come back to the 18th podcast, we're going to look at what became known as the Platt Amendment and how that would pave the way for America to create something that would be for the first time available for worldwide shipping called the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal would ultimately provide what Thomas Jefferson had hoped when he was president, that his entourage called the Lewis and Clark Expedition would find an all-water route connecting directly the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, that never was found, but Teddy Roosevelt was now going to make it. But I've got a question for you. How can Teddy Roosevelt create a canal and call it the Panama Canal when the country of Panama at this time doesn't exist? How did that happen? Well, I haven't got that far in the history books. Let me look into that. And that's where we'll begin with when we return next week with the 18th podcast in our second half of world history. So thank you for listening. If you have any recommendations or comments about this podcast, please contact me through my website. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.